John the Baptist's face, which is pretty gruesome, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure whether I believe that, but I read it on the internet, so it must be true. Halifax means holy face. There you go. And if you don't believe me, here's the crest of Halifax, and right in the middle of it is John the Baptist's face. There you go. <laughs> um, so there you go. That's the macabre bit of this sermon done. But um, you know, when you sort of research John the Baptist on Wikipedia, they're all all sorts of relics all over the place. You can find, you know, John the Baptist's beard somewhere as well, I think. Um, anyway, um, as I was researching for this, it became apparent to me, I guess I already knew this, but just how big a deal, how important John the Baptist is, um, both in the Christian story and the story of the Bible, um, but actually also to other faiths. So there's quite a big write-up of John the Baptist in the Quran as well, um, and he's important to lots of different people. In that reading we just read, Jesus talks about John the Baptist. Um, it talks about him in a really friendly way. In, in, uh, he talks about him with real um, depth and talks about what a great man he is. Um, and he says this, just read it again. Truly I tell you, for those born of women, there has none that's risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Truly I tell you, for those born of women, there has none risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus talks about John the Baptist as being this really great man. Um, and so just a potted history of John the Baptist. I guess we probably all know little bits and pieces about John the Baptist, but um, we'll just fly through a sort of potted history of John the Baptist. So you probably know, and this is like where it very distinctly ties into the Advent story. Um, he's actually talked about in all four of the Gospels and talked about in Acts as well. Um, but the biggest write-up of John the Baptist is actually in Luke, in Luke's Gospel. Um, and in Luke's Gospel, it's the only one that records the story of his birth. Um, and you may know this story, it's quite a famous one and ties into the Advent story, but his parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, were trying to have a child um, and couldn't, and Zechariah was a priest and went and prayed at the temple, and an angel came to see him. This is about six months before the angel Gabriel turns up and talks to Mary, um, and, and this angel appears and talks to Zechariah and says, you can have a child. Um, and strangely, um, Zechariah, well, I don't know whether this is strange or not, but Zechariah doesn't believe this um, and is a bit dubious about it. And so the angel says, well, I'm going to make you mute until your child comes. So Zechariah disappears off home and can't speak anymore. Um, eventually, um, and they, the angel says, you've got to call this child John when he, when he arrives. Um, so eventually, um, the child is born. They call it John. Um, and this, again, is about six months before uh, the birth of Jesus. In that story, it also says that Elizabeth, his mum, was related to Mary, and that would make Jesus and John then uh, relations. Um, anyway, there's not a huge amount written about John the Baptist's early life, um, but there is quite a bit written about as he gets into his early adulthood. Um, all the gospel, well, not all the gospels, but some of the gospels talk about this fulfillment of a prophecy, and actually saw a little bit of it in that reading that Dan just read to us. There are some prophecies in Isaiah and in Malachi about somebody who will come, who will prepare the way. There'll be a voice crying out in the wilderness, a voice crying out in the wilderness who will prepare the way for God. The Gospels talk about John the Baptist as being that person, the person who's coming to prepare the way for God. In his early life, John disappears out into the, into the wilderness, um, and he's quite a, a strange figure, a weird figure. He wears, you probably read the story about him wearing camel skin and eating locusts and honey, and you could think of him as a bit of a sort of recluse that hung out in the desert. Um, and the more you read, the less that is true, actually. John was a compelling figure. Um, actually, people trekked out into the wilderness to see him and to talk to him and to hear about his view of God and what he thought he was preparing the way for. 
John's in the desert. He's actually at the River Jordan, and he baptizes people, hence John the Baptist. Um, and he's baptizing people in the river, and he's got a lot to say, but I guess he's got three key things to say. He lives in a really corrupt society. So a society that politically is corrupt in terms of the uh, religious figures. It's under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Society's not working as he should. And John's message to people is repent. Um, and we've talked a lot, haven't we, as a church community about that word repent, meaning turn around, go a different way. John's message to people is live a different life. It's not supposed to be like this. Um, they talk about John sometimes as the final prophet of the Old Testament. And the prophets always said that, didn't they? They were like casting a vision of the future and saying it shouldn't be like this. Let's do life differently. John's message to people is repent, live a different way. You need to live a different life. We all need to live a different life. That's his first message. Secondly, he's baptizing people. And he's saying he's baptizing people for forgiveness of sins. And I guess there's that thing right in the middle of that, which is about sin and being its own punishment. And it all ties together, in my mind, that John is saying, live a different way. You've got to live a different way. Actually, the things you do, there will be consequences for. Things will catch up with you unless you turn around and live a different way. And then thirdly, John is really humble. He knows that he's not the star player here. He knows that this isn't about him. And he constantly says to people, it's not about me. I'm not the person. I'm preparing the way for somebody greater than me who's going to come. Actually, in a, a different bit of the Bible, um, it says that he knows that there's somebody coming who he's not fit to tie the sandals of. He knows that it's not about him. There's somebody to come greater than him. Eventually, um, Jesus turns up. Um, whether you think he's a relation or not, Jesus turns up and goes to the Jordan to get baptized. Um, and Jesus turns up and says to John, I want you to baptize me. Um, now, John doesn't want to do it because, you know, he, he doesn't think that's the right thing to do. But Jesus persuades him and convinces him that it's the right thing to do. And so John baptizes Jesus in the River Jordan. And there's that great story about the heavens opening and God speaking to Jesus and saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He's a courageous man, John. Um, and he's winding up the political powers in, uh, in that part of the world. Herod uh, Antipas is the king at the time, um, and he's wound up by um, John the Baptist. John is almost starting a movement of people out in the wilderness. People who are going to listen to him, people who are starting to believe in him. And you can understand why a king at that time would get a bit frightened by that. This guy out in the desert that's compelling, and that's really speaking a message that people want to hear, um, and the king would feel frightened by that. And there are stories in the Bible, but there are also stories in Jewish history, actually, that talk about Herod being worried about this. Josephus, one of the Jewish historians, writes about John the Baptist and Herod and says that Herod was really getting frightened by this guy out in the desert who was starting to compel people and was starting to actually get people, draw a movement of people towards him. And so Herod's irritated, and then there's this story in some of the Gospels about um, Herod's wife. Um, actually, Herod ditches his first wife and goes off and gets a new one, um, and it's actually his brother's, brother's wife that he takes, a lady called Herodian. And there's this story about um, Herodian, and she's furious with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is quite plain and quite candid and quite frank with Herod and says, I just don't think this is right, what you've done. I don't think this is the right way to live. He's speaking to the king. He knows full well that this could lead to his imprisonment or it could lead to his execution. But John does it anyway. 
and so he winds up Herodian as well because he said, I don't think what you've done here is right, ditching your first wife and disappearing off with somebody else. And so Herodian decides that she wants to get rev uh, revenge on John the Baptist. And there's this bit of the story about her daughter, and her daughter ends up doing a dance or something, I can't remember what it is. But, um, and the daughter actually, actually ends up getting um, this gift from the king where the king says, I will grant you anything you want. And Herodian says to her daughter, what I want you to ask for is uh, John the Baptist's execution. And so John the Baptist has been put in jail by Herod, and then ultimately he's executed and beheaded. Um, and it says in the Bible, it's a pretty gruesome story about John the Baptist's head being delivered on a platter. John the Baptist is a, a courageous man, a man of integrity, and ultimately it doesn't end well for him because of all of that. Um, in that story, just one final bit, and then we can talk about it slightly. Um, in the very final um, line, I think, of the bit Dan read to us, there's that bit about Elijah. I don't know whether you noticed that. And Jesus saying, this is, if you accept it, this guy is Elijah. Um, and there's all sorts of prophecy in the Old Testament about Elijah coming back. And so throughout John the Baptist's ministry, people were asking, is this guy the Messiah? Is this guy Elijah? Who is he? Is he another prophet? And there was constantly this discussion about who John the Baptist was. Was he Elijah, the Messiah, another prophet? Um, John the Baptist is actually quite clear in some of the writings that he's not Elijah. He's the guy coming to prepare the way for Jesus. Actually, in that um, reading we just read there, Jesus is sort of saying, yeah, he is. Um, and so there's this sense of whatever you think about that. Um, John the Baptist was the guy coming with the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for God. And so I, I read all of this. Jesus says in that reading um, of John, he says, this is the one whom it is written about. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way for you. I'll send my messenger ahead of Jesus who will prepare the way for Jesus. Um, I think John's a courageous man. Um, He's asking people to repent, to turn around, do life differently. And you could sort of glibly read over that, I think. But he's saying to people, you know the way you live, you know the way I live, you know the way we live, it's not right, let's do it differently. And I don't suppose that was a massively comfortable message. He's saying to people, do things differently, repent, turn around, we need to live a different way. I think it takes courage to do that. He lives this completely different lifestyle. So he lives in the desert, he wears camel skins and eats locusts and honey and all that stuff. That's not what the political leaders of the day did. That's not what the religious leaders of the day did. They lived in fancy palaces with lots of money and lots of power and lots of wealth. John was deliberately demonstrating a living a different lifestyle. I read a, a bit um, a, that was writing about John and said he was almost like a walking sermon. John, you could tell from the person he was what he thought about power and wealth and money and all of that sort of stuff that he was um, encouraging people away from. He pushes people to make real change. Um, I don't think it was in that reading, but in other bits of the Gospels, um, John says to people who pitch up to get baptized, and they're just coming for the show, really. They're just coming to get baptized to see what's happening. They don't really care too much about it. And John says, if you're not here to actually genuinely change, if you're not here to bear fruit of changing direction, don't bother. And he calls them vipers. It says in one of them, the Sadducees, when they turn up and they're just getting baptized for the sake of it, John says, you're a bunch of vipers, go away. If you don't want to really change, there's no point you being here. Don't just go through the rituals of uh, doing this. He's saying to people, I want you to really change. I want me to really change too, I suspect he's saying. 
Um, and ultimately, John's courageous because there's that story about Herod. Um, to the king, the king who's got extreme power and can put him in prison and can ultimately execute him, even at that moment, John still speaks the truth. John says what he actually thinks about the situation, and it leads him to a place that ultimately leads to his execution. I think John's got two things. I don't think it's just courage. I think it's courage and integrity together. And so I guess the questions for me that came out of this, first of all, is how can a man like John be that level of courageous and have that level of integrity? What was it that allowed him to behave like that? And I guess as I read the story, I thought three things. There are probably loads of things, really, but three things. One, I think John knew who he was, um, and John knew what his purpose was. And ultimately, John knew how he fitted into a story that was much bigger than him. I think you get a real sense of a man that's really grounded and rooted, and because he's got that grounding and rooting, he's able to be courageous, and he's able to be honest, and he's able to tell people what he thinks because he's got that level of grounding and rooting. And you know, we always talk about character development, character formation, and the nine habits stuff that Jill does. I think some of it is leading us in this direction. If we can become grounded and rooted people who genuinely know who we are and what our purpose is and how we fit into a bigger picture that's bigger than us, perhaps the more courageous and the more integrity we can each have. And I think that's really compelling. So I, I'm, I don't know about you, but when I see people on the news or and read about people that have got that sort of courage and integrity. It's something that's just immediately compelling, isn't it? I watched um, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you saw it, but on the BBC there was the um, Nelson Mandela film, The Long Walk to Freedom, it was on BBC, and I watched that a couple of weeks ago, and it's a great film. But again, just reminds you of a person that had that courage and integrity. And Nelson Mandela, at his trial, where he's about to be either sent away to life imprisonment or executed... He doesn't fudge the truth or say, I didn't mean it, or, you know, he doesn't avoid the question. He's still being brutally honest. He says in the final statement of his, um, his, his trial hearing, um, he says, and I'm paraphrasing the words, but in effect, you know, black people and white people ought to live equally in this country. And I'm prepared to live for that. But if it comes to it, I'm also prepared to die for that. Um, even at the point where he knew he could be sent away for the rest of his life or killed, he's still telling the truth. And I think it's just smacks of a man that knows who he is and why he's here. When he comes out of prison, and many years later, and there's all the communal violence in the street, um, in the film there's this little clip um, of him going on the telly and, and saying, this isn't the way we should be doing it. I know this is not the message you want to hear, but we shouldn't be fighting in the streets. This isn't the way to get equality for everyone in South Africa. Um, and another guy, you know, same place, um, same story really, but Desmond Tutu. Again, you've probably seen hundreds of video clips of Desmond Tutu, who's a man you know full well is going to tell you the truth, don't you? You sit there and you watch him and you know this man is so grounded, he is just going to tell me what he thinks. I think those sorts of people are really compelling. Um, and honestly, I think that's sort of what we're all crying out for. Um, I think some of the political things that have happened in this country and in the States over the last year, much longer than that, I guess, but certainly in this year, are about that. We're looking for people that are courageous and honest. Um, and I think sometimes we've gone for courageous over integrity, and sometimes we've found courageous people but not courageous people with integrity. But we're looking for that realness, aren't we, the whole time. I think it's a really compelling thing. 
I think ultimately this is the job of the church. So all of those bits of the gospel said a voice crying out in the wilderness, a voice crying out for justice, a voice crying out preparing the way. I think that is the job of each of us individually and the job of the church. And I think sometimes we've forgotten that individually and corporately. Um, I think sometimes the church has forgotten who we are, what our purpose is, and how our purpose fits into a bigger, broader story than us. Um, I think sometimes the church has forgotten that its job is to be a voice crying out in the wilderness for justice, a voice that's preparing the way for the kingdom of God. Um, I've been involved in so many conversations whilst working at Oasis, both within Oasis and with people outside of Oasis, and conversations where the church has forgotten that that's its job, and we've got lost in the politics of how the church operates, or we've got lost in our ecclesiology of church needs to happen like this, and it's got to have 10 members, and it's got to meet at these particular times, or sometimes we've got frightened, so I, you know, both within Oasis and without conversations about, well, can we say this now, or actually maybe we'll get into trouble, maybe we should come back to this in a few years. Conversations where sometimes we've worried, um, again, within Oasis and without, about money as the church. Perhaps if we say these things, we won't get as much, you know, we won't be able to operate because of the money we've got. I think that is the church forgetting its job. We're the voice crying out in the wilderness for justice. And I think sometimes we've got lost in those conversations. So here's just some examples. Where has the church been? And I know individually church is and people in churches have done things about these things. But where has the church been in the Syrian refugee crisis? Why is the church not standing up corporately and saying, this is wrong, repent, we've got to do life differently. We've got to have life a different way. Where has the church corporately been? Um, when we've seen the Calais camp being closed down and those children being brought to the UK, speaking up and saying, as the church, we think this isn't right. We need to do life differently. Where has the church been in the US election? Why isn't the church saying misogyny and xenophobia are not right? Repent, we need to do life differently. In fact, some of the church almost says the complete opposite of that, which is these things are not so bad, don't worry about it. Where is the church on climate change standing up and being a voice in the wilderness saying, this is not right? I think we've got two responses to all of that. And I think <clears throat> we probably corporately can fall into both of these traps. One is that we become a bit of an echo chamber where we all moan about those things and complain about it. We can tell there's injustice there. And our response to that is to talk to people who all think the same thing and just, you know, moan about it a bit. We write a brilliantly worded Facebook post or a, um, you know, a 140 characters tweet that says something profound about it, but actually we're just talking to our friends and actually our response to that, there's this clicktivism thing, isn't there, about, you know, our response to that is a click rather than actually doing too much about it. We all talk to ourselves about things we already all agree with. Or the other option, I think, is sometimes we say, well, let's forget the big picture our response should be just local. Let's get involved locally. Let's do something local. Let's actually respond to some of these challenges locally. I think that's fantastic, and I'm not knocking that in the slightest. But I think there's a slightly different way, which is we need to get involved locally. We need to get involved nationally. We need to get involved globally. And we need to amplify that stuff to actually have influence to be the voice of the church crying out in the wilderness. You know, in our five eyes that we've talked about over the last few weeks, I think that's why we talk about involvement 
and influence, influence through service. So this is not about power influence, this is about service influence. But I think as the church, we're supposed to be involved and then amplify that message to actually be the voice crying out in the wilderness. Um, again, I read this, this good um, passage about John the Baptist. And it said, ultimately, we're called to be the practitioners of the gospel, not the people who articulate the gospel, speak the gospel. We're supposed to be the practitioners of the gospel. In that um, reading, I think the best bit, for, for me, the best bit of that reading is the bit where Jesus says, John the Baptist is a great man, yada, yada, yada. But then he goes on to say, anybody who's involved in building the kingdom of God, even the least of these people, can do greater things than John. He says, John the Baptist was absolutely fantastic, but anybody who's involved in the, building the kingdom of God can do greater things than John. And I think that's fantastic. There's a bit in John's story where he's been put in prison and he sends his disciples off to see Jesus. I think we even read it. Sends his disciples off to see Jesus. And his disi the disciples of John go and see Jesus and say, are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Messiah? Because if you're not, we need to look for somebody else. And I think maybe even at that moment, John, a bit like the disciples of Jesus, perhaps he's expecting somebody to come and be the sort of military ruler to take over, to kick the Romans out, to actually be this Messiah that comes and uses his power and authority to take over. I think even at that moment, perhaps John thinks that. And I think in the passage that we just read, Jesus is saying, you can be greater than John. You can do bigger things than John because you've, you, know, you know me. You know what I've done. You know, my revolution is not about power and might and kicking people out. My revolution is about all the things that he described, which were peace, patience, kindness, self-control, love. Jesus is saying, you can do greater things because you actually know the end of the story. You know what my revolution is really about. And I think that is such a fantastic challenge for us all, isn't it? John was this great man, and Jesus is saying to us, you know what I'm about. You can do even greater things. Finally, I guess I was just thinking, if John came to our church, and next week John was speaking at our church, a man who's courageous and got this integrity, courageous and integrity, what would he say to us? What would he actually pitch up and say to us, honestly? And I think um, he might give us some encouragement, but I think he might also have some blunt things to say to us too, some straightforward things to say to us, some plain things to say to us. And this is to me and to all of us, I think. But I, might, I think he might say to us, don't get too comfortable. Don't get too resting on your laurels. Don't get too self-satisfied. You might be the community church that's inclusive, but don't get too comfortable. There's a big wide world out there that's in pain, and there's so much more to do. He might well say to us, good start, but it really only is the start. There's a big wide world out there. And you've got to get involved in it. He might say, remember, just like he said to the people he baptized, remember that this really takes change. Don't just turn up and go through the motions. Like, if you're going to say these things and sing these things and pray about these things, you've got to actually turn it into some fruit and change. He might actually say to us, good start, but remember to continually repent, continually turn around, continually make sure you're heading in the right direction. I think to finish, and I think I've said this a few times, but the job of the church is to be that voice crying out in the wilderness. I think it's our job individually. I think it's our job corporately in this room. I think it's the job of the church 
And I think sometimes we can forget that job and get too lost in the politics of life and being diplomatic and making sure that we're you know, not losing money and all, all of that sort of stuff. I think our job, the moment the church forgets that job, I think the church is lost. I think our job is to call out in the wilderness. I'm going to stop there.